0: Well, we're in a great passage this morning, Matthew 18. We're going to look at verses 21 to 35, and I just want to thank Kevin and Matthew for leading us in worship this morning. That was Those songs just really fit this passage very, very well. The passage we're looking at, we typically think of and refer to as the parable of the unforgiving servant, and I think that's a good title. I called this message, Forgive as You Have Been Forgiven. Forgive as You Have Been Forgiven. And and let's begin this morning by reading our text. Again, Matthew 18, starting in verse 21. Then Peter came up to him and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but seventy-seven times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him ten thousand talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also, my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Well, the theme of this passage is forgiveness. Peter asked in verse 21. Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? And in the parable, the king forgave the debt, verse 27, out of pity for him. The master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. The king says in verse 33, And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And then in verse 35, Jesus summarizes the parable with what I think is a a bit of a shocking statement. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. And so the theme here is forgiveness. And for now, we just want to realize that Jesus calls us to forgive, to forgive our brother from the heart. And there's a warning here if we don't. In fact, in verse 34, the word there translated in the ESV, jailers, is probably better translated, deliver him over to the torturers, to the torturers. Now, the greater context, I feel like you already know, we've we've been here for a number of weeks, and unless you're visiting this morning, but we've been here for a number of weeks. The disciples of Jesus are like little children in Matthew 18, and we're to see ourselves as the, the lowest on the scale of greatness, as as the lowest on the scale of status. And so, verse 5, we receive one another which carried these ideas of welcoming one another, helping one another, serving one another. We're to be a, a body that cares for one another, and, and that especially with God in view. And so we are disciples of Jesus Christ. We're followers of Jesus Christ. We're, we're to learn from Him. We're to learn of His person, his person and His ways. We learn from him and we we practice what we learn and what that means is that that we're very concerned about sin. We're to be a a people that are very concerned about sin in our midst. And so we're concerned about temptations to sin or causes to sin. Or in Greek we learned that word scandalon, anything that would take us off of the proper path. Anything that would, would move us away from following Jesus Christ, whether that was in belief, in our doctrine, or whether that was something in our practice. As Brother Lauren likes to say, whether it's in our orthodoxy or in our orthopraxy, we're concerned about our brother. And because of this love for one another, when a believer seems to go astray, we pursue them. And we go and we talk to them, and if necessary, we seek to restore them to following after Jesus Christ. And we saw that whole process then in verses 15 to 20. And our goal was to win this person back in verse 15 to gain our brother. And I guess that whole thing, that whole conversation, that whole teaching leads Peter to this question. Well, how often do I do that? What's the limit on forgiveness? Where's the line? You know, as we say, when is, when is enough enough? And we, and we just, that, that's it, That it's too much forgiveness. When is enough enough? Where is the line? How often am I to forgive my brother? Now, this is an important issue for the church. And I think that unforgiveness hurts us more than we know. Our whole section here, Matthew 18, has been about relationships with the church, relationships with our brothers and sisters in Christ. And good relationships in the church, <clears throat> good relationships in the church are going to require forgiveness. It's going to require repentance, restoration, reconciliation. And this forgiveness, it's tied with grace. It's tied with love mercy, kindness, and other good fruits. When we think about peace and harmony and a a general goodwill towards others, that's that's this idea of forgiveness. But on the other side, unforgiveness is really a, a dark word. Unforgiveness. Unforgiveness comes from a lack of love. It comes from a lack of grace. It's unmerciful. It's unkind. And tied with this idea of unforgiveness are, are things like retaliation, vengeance, envy, jealousy, bitterness, and grudges against other people. And if you think about it, these things, these vengeance and envy and jealousy and bitterness, these are things that eat a person up from the inside, And unforgiveness leaves a trail of broken relationships behind us or behind it. And when we see unforgiveness, it's really the opposite of all that we've learned in this section about how we're to receive and treat one another. And unforgiveness should not exist among the people of God. God describes himself in Exodus 34 verses 6 and 7 He proclaims to Moses there, the Lord, this is just Exodus 34, 6 and 7, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, or Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. And so God is a forgiving God. And all of these characteristics there in Exodus 34, mercy, grace, slowness to anger, patience, his love, his faithfulness, all of them point to a God who forgives sin. In that text, God, or yeah, God is really proclaiming the glory of God to Moses. And part of the glory of God is that he forgives sin. And he delights in showing mercy to sinners. And we should also imitate God in this willingness to forgive. We need to recognize then who we are. We are sinners saved by grace. We are saved by grace, and, and yet we can also say that we are being saved. There's an ongoing process here. There's, there's a, a process, and we are being sanctified. We are being made more and more like Christ. And as Will taught us last week, God is working in us to will and to work for his good pleasure. And that work then continues throughout this life. And therefore, none of us are willing and working according to the fullness of God's good pleasure. And that means that there's going to be times when we sin against one another because none of us are perfect, none of us are utterly like Christ. Now that doesn't make it okay Sin is always sin and we can't ignore it and we don't accept it and we don't embrace it. But when it happens, we must forgive it and we must help people out of it. Where our goal, as we've seen over and over again, is to gain our brother, to restore our brother to fellowship with the church and fellowship with the Lord. And so we need to recognize that we are all sinners and that we are all being saved. And until that salvation is fully realized and we are perfected in glory and holiness, there will be sin. There will be sin in our marriages and in our friendship and in our church and we need to forgive one another and be gracious to one another and be merciful to one another. And in this moment, I I can think of nothing worse than the attitude of the unforgiving servant which goes out to inflict pain on his fellow slave who sinned against him look at verse 28 again but when that same servant went out he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii and seizing him grasping him he began to choke him saying pay what you owe It's a picture of what Hebrews 12 and verse 15 calls a root of bitterness. Hebrews 12, 15 says, see that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble. And by it, by this root of bitterness, many become defiled. See, unforgiveness makes people angry at others and it, and it spreads and it, it and it It spreads through the church, it spreads through the people of God, and by it, many people become defiled. It's a defiling influence in our midst. Unforgiveness tries to make others pay for what they have done against us. It wants to exact its pound of flesh. It wants retaliation. It wants vengeance. And it forgets that God in Christ has forgiven us an unpayable debt. The unforgiving person is like the slave in the parable who seems to have no sense of the mercy that they were shown. You read the story and you're amazed at the, at the blindness and the ignorance of this man, and yet he's really the perfect picture of a professing Christian who refuses to forgive. And what we see is that this man ends up re- representing an unsaved person, an unsaved professing Believer. And what we'll see is that forgiven people forgive and that unforgiveness is really a mark of someone who is not forgiven and who is, who is utterly or who has utterly forgotten what God has done for us in Christ. And so we'll see that forgiven people forgive and that unforgiveness is a mark of someone who is not forgiven or who has utterly forgotten what God has done for us in Christ. We're going to look at the text today under three headings. We're going to see, first of all, the compassionate king in verses 21 to 27, or I think it's really 23 to 27. There's going to be some kind of working up to the text, but the compassionate king. We're going to see, number two, the cruel slave in verses 28 to 30, and then what I called there the contrary king in verses 31 to 35. And it really all begins here with Peter's question verse 21 then Peter came up and said to him Lord how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him as many as seven times now Peter is quite generous here with his seven times seven times the rabbis taught that forgiveness should be granted three times and there's some quotes here this is uh, I'm reading from a, a commentator called Klein Snodgrass And he's quoting from some some later Jewish sources, but but people think that there was kind of an oral tradition, and so these would have likely existed around the time of Jesus. One of those sources says, if a man sins two or three times, they forgive him, but on the fourth, they do not forgive him. Another one says, if a man commits a transgression, the first, second, and third time, he is forgiven. The fourth time, he is not forgiven, And Klein Snodgrass informs us that the subject in that context is the forgiveness by God. And so the first, second, third time forgiven, fourth time not forgiven. That's kind of what was going around in that day. And so Peter is quite generous with his seven times. MacArthur has a kind of a funny thing where he says it's like Peter doubles it and adds one for good measure or something like that but generous with his seven times, but, but Jesus says it's not enough. Jesus says in verse 22, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times, 77 times. Now we need to stop there for a moment. The ESV has, I do not say up to seven times, but 77 times. The Legacy Standard Bible has, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven The Christian Standard Bible says, I tell you, not as many as seven, Jesus replied. They kind of put the little Jesus replied in the middle there. I don't know why they they did that. But "I, I tell you, not as many as seven, Jesus replied, but 70 times seven. And the NIV, which I rarely quote from, Jesus answered, I tell you, not seven times, but 77 times. And so what's going on here? is it 77 times or is it 70 times 7 which equals 490 times and it's 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 actually difficult to say for sure peter uses a a, a word that means a, a single word that means seven times and then jesus uses it back he says not seven times but then he says 70 times Seven. And so set, there's a word seven times, and then there's another word seventy times, and then there's an additional seven at the end of that. Now, um, my view is that it's, Jesus isn't giving us a math equation, right? Because we could say seventy times seven, and that's like a, a math equation, seventy times seven equals four hundred and ninety. And so I lean towards this meaning seventy times seven, or, or really, we might translate that 77 times to kind of smooth it out in English. Now, the other reason I lean this way is because if you go back, and and I want you to, you might as well do this, go to Genesis chapter 4. The same wording is used in Genesis chapter 4, and the Greek translation of the Old Testament translates this in the exact same way as what we see in our text 77 times. So we're going to Genesis 4, and uh, verse. look at verse 14. Verse 14, Cain is worried that people are going to kill him if they find him. He's been banished. In verse 15, the Lord answers his worry and says, uh, it says there, The Lord said to him, No, not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. And so there's a, a going to be a sevenfold, or, or we might say a seven times vengeance on anyone who kills Cain. And then we go to verse 19, and along comes here what what I would think of as wicked Lamech. And Lamech is, I think, the first guy who takes two wives. And Lamech kills a man. Apparently this man had wounded him. And so if you look at verse 23, Lamech has a little poem. He said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice, you wives of Lamech, listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is 77-fold. And the Hebrew here is, means 77 times. It does not mean 70 times seven. And again, the Greek translation of the Old Testament translated this in the exact way that we have in our text, 70 times 7, which again means 77 times. Now, if Jesus is thinking about what Lamech said here, then what he's saying is that just like Lamech went overboard in his revenge numbers, so we need to go overboard in forgiving. Can kind you of, kind of see what's happening there? We need to go overboard in forgive, in forgiving. Lamech took Cain seven times and he multiplied it sinfully, I believe, to say that it's going to be a 77 times vengeance on him. And I think Jesus kind of goes in the opposite way. He goes goes in, in a righteous way and he takes Peter seven times and going in the opposite direction, he says we are to forgive 77 times. But whatever number we use... The point is not the number here, okay? You, you get this? The, the point is not the number. It's not like we should imagine someone counting offenses. 27, that's 28. 20, 77, one more, baby. 78, that's it. I've had enough. You know, that, that's, not the, that's not what's happening here. And so, uh, you know, as one commentator said, whoever counts has not forgiven at all but is only biding his or her time. And so it's not like we're supposed to be counting up offenses and we get to the 491st time and that's it now I can blow my stack as we sometimes say. I can I can get my vengeance now. Whoever counts is not forgiven at all but is only biding his or her time. The last part of 1 Corinthians 13:5 the section on love it's literally there, love does not count evil. And so love isn't making an account, it doesn't have a logbook tracking offenses. And Jesus' point here is that we have to go beyond what we think or beyond what we can count in our forgiveness of one another. And so he tells this parable then, and we can go back to our text to, to show us how to forgive, and it starts with the king. It starts with number one in our outline, the compassionate king in verses 21 or 23 to 27. Look at look at the text again. Matthew 18, look at verse 23. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. And so the kingdom then is comparable to this whole story that Jesus tells with a, a king and a servant and everything that's involved here. And the kingdom here is is largely equivalent to salvation. Jesus uses kingdom to refer to what happens between his rejection and chapter 12 all the way to his return in, in chapter 25 and that whole time period and what happens in that time period he often speaks of as the kingdom. And this time we are, this this is the time that we are in now. And something about this time, it's gonna be like this king. And it's going to be like this whole story, and the king wants to settle accounts. And this king has servants, and and more literally, these are slaves. These servants are slaves, and they owe him money. And it's time to settle the accounts. And so in verse 24, when he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And this one was brought to him, and and it seems like because he was brought to him, It seems like he maybe didn't come willingly. And it's no wonder because he owed him 10,000 talents. Now, that's a a bit of work here for us to figure out this number, 10,000 talents. But this is important for us to kind of understand here. A talent was a weight of metal. And it was the largest weight of metal in the ancient world. Now, it could have been any kind of metal. It could have been gold or silver or bronze or, or whatever, but gold, silver and bronze are the most common. And so a talent is the largest weight of metal in the ancient world. And the actual weight of a talent kind of varied at various times through history, so it's it's difficult to be very precise here. But again it could be of gold or silver or bronze. And apparently if it was unspecified, typically the the, the metal that we have in view would have been silver. Now, ten thousand is the Greek word myrion, or, uh, murioi, or murios, and, and it's, um, it's where we get our English word myriads. Myriads. Myriads and, and myriads. You know, lots and lots is kind of how we might say that. And a myriad, or a myri, myriads, was the largest number that had a word to represent it. And, and, and when it was plural, it, it often meant, the number 10,000, the number 10,000, but it's more, it's, it's less precise than that, and it's just kind of the, the biggest number, and so it's, it's multitudes that, that you can't even really properly number. Now, apparently a talent, one talent, remember we've got 10,000 of these, but one talent was worth something like 6,000 drachma, or 6,000 denarii, denarii is the plural of a denarius. A denarius was the wages that a worker would make in a day. Same with the drachma. One drachma, one denary, that's for the average person, that's one day of work. And so now we can begin to figure out this debt. And so we've got 6,000 denarii times 10,000. And these are days of work. So we're thinking about days of work. We're talking about 60 million days wages. That's what 10,000 talents is. 60 million days wages. And so if we figure this out here, then if we, if we go minimum wage, which I think is $15 an hour, and we say, let's say we work eight hours a day, that's $120 a day. This amount of, of debt here is now seven. dollars point two billion dollars or seven thousand two hundred million dollars or to kind of put this another way to pay off this debt it would take sixty million days of work not sixty million days of living sixty million days of working and so if you work six days a week three hundred and twelve days per year with no holidays six days a week eight hours a day It's only going to take you 192,307 years to pay off this debt for the average laborer. Okay, 192,307 years. Now, if you work 80 years of of life, okay, let's say you can work 80 years. Let's say you live to 95, you start working at 15. You've got 80 years good working, six days a week to pay off this debt Never mind eating or anything besides that. It's going to take you and, uh, 2,403 lifetimes to pay off this debt. Do you, are you guys kind of, you getting the weight of the debt here? 2,403, 80 year lifetimes, 80 years of just working and not eating or anything else, just paying your debt. And so this is an astronomical debt. This is astronomical. Nobody could pay this debt. Nobody could even rack up this much debt. It's it's on the, the point of ridiculous how much debt this is. Herod the Great brought in apparently 900, 000, uh, 900 talents per year total income, Herod the Great, that's that's the total income of all of the area that we typically think of as Israel, Galilee, Judea, Perea, uh, Decapolis, uh, 900 talents a year tax income, and so for him even, 10,000 talents is 11 years of all of the revenue of the entire country under his reign. Again, it's an impossible amount. And so if we go to verse 25, then with that information, and since he could not pay, no kidding, and since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had in payment to be made. Now, a slave was worth uh, apparently a few hundred denarii, maybe 200 to 500. And so this, this selling of him and his wife and his children and all that he has really is, is hardly going to make a scratch on this dent. And so the, the slave who, who can't pay, he begs for mercy in verse 26. So the servant fell on his knees and imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. Now, there's no chance that he can pay it back. And if he couldn't pay it in verse 25, if he didn't have the money already, if he didn't still have the money that he somehow managed to get in debt with, he's never going to be able to earn it and pay it back. And so he's not going to be able to pay everything like he says. His only hope then is that the master, the king, is going to have mercy on him. Now he asks for patience, but he actually gets so much more in verse 27, and out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. Now that should really just stagger us there, that we should just be amazed what in the world is going on. He got pity. He got compassion. One translator co- translated this, one commentator translated this in verse 27, And his heart went out to him. And that's the idea of this word, compassion or pity, as the ESV translates it. We've seen this word used of Jesus in Matthew 9 and verse 36. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them, because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Again, in Matthew 14 and verse 14, when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them and he healed their sick. And in Matthew 15 and verse 32, then Jesus called his disciples and said, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat and I am unwilling to send them away hungry lest they faint on the way. And so this master, this king had pity. He felt sympathy for this slave and and really, and, and we're only thinking of the parable here, really, we should probably think of this slave as a, a crook. You know, he must have wrongly taken or, or somehow grievously mismanaged his master's money. And so this compassion then really comes across or comes close to an infinite compassion. And when we come later to see that this massive debt represents our sin, we see that, that it really is an infinite compassion of our Lord. We owed an unpayable debt and God himself paid it through his son. Now this is as good a place as any. Good a place as any to point out that that with forgiveness, there's always going to be an absorbing of the debt. If the king releases him and forgives the debt, he, he won't get that money back. That money's lost, right? There's a, there's an absorption that happens. It was, it was really lost anyway, but when we forgive, we are releasing what was owed us. And typically that's going to involve, in some measure, absorbing the cost. And so the king released him, likely he released him from prison, and he forgave him his debt. And that's what forgiveness actually means. It means to release. To forgive means to release from the legal or moral obligation or consequence. And so the idea here in this case is that, that the king is releasing him from the legal obligation or the legal consequences of the debt. And in our case, when we forgive, we're releasing people from the moral obligation and very often, but not always, the consequence of the debt. And so in the parable, it's the debt of the 10,000 talents. And for us, it's really the debt of sin that God forgives us of. It's the debt of sin. And there is going to be no more consequence for our moral failure. There is no more hell for us if we are in Christ. But we're still thinking about the parable here. And you would think you would, you would think that this slave is going to be overjoyed, that he's going to be kind of like over the moon as he walks out of the king's presence. His family, his possession, even himself have been freed and they're no longer going to be sold and he's no longer going to be in jail for the rest of his life. But that's not how the story goes. And so now we're into number two, the cruel slave in verses 28 to 30. The cruel slave. Look at verse 28. But when that same servant went out, and it seems here like he leaves the master's presence and he immediately goes and finds his fellow servant. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants or fellow slaves who owed him a hundred denarii. Now a hundred denarii, again, that's a hundred days wages. Most workers would have been able to pay that in maybe four months or so. It's a it's a decent sum. It's not a small sum, but it it, it comes nowhere close to what this man was just forgiven. It, it it probably wouldn't have even taken the decimal places that I rounded up when I gave you that number of one hundred and ninety two thousand three hundred and seven years in order to pay this debt. A hundred denarii is a a decent amount, but it's not anywhere close to what this man was forgiven. But look what he does, verse 28, when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii, and seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. Yikes. Pay what you owe, choking him. Verse 29, so his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me, and I will pay you. His fellow servant went down and pleaded with him, have patience with me, and I will pay you. Now, verse 29 should remind us of verse 26. In fact, I want you to look at both of those verses. In the Greek, it's actually word for word here, except for three minor variations. First of all, verse 26, it's the servant. In verse 29, it's his fellow servant. There's the do-loss, the slave, and then there's the soon-do-loss, the the slave-with or the the fellow-slave. That's difference number one. Number two, in verse twenty-six, the servant fell on his knees, imploring him. That's the word that we talked about last night in the in the Christmas banquet. It, it means to worship, or in in context like this, before a king, it's it, this man's not worshiping the king, but he's he's humbly bowing to a superior, and that's the word there. So he he bows to the king in verse twenty-six. In verse 29, we're dealing with fellow servants, and so he doesn't bow to him. That wouldn't probably be appropriate. They're, they're really socially on the same level, and so verse 29, he fell down, and instead of falling and 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 bowing he now just falls and he pleads and that's the word that you might know parakaleo it means to exhort or urge or comfort depending on the context and and sometimes even with that idea of begging and pleading and so there's just a slightly different word for the way that they they bow and and, and plead here which is just appropriate it, based on talking to a king or talking to a fellow servant And then he says, have patience with me and I will pay you everything in verse 26. Whereas in verse 29, everything is just implied, have patience with me and I will pay you. And of course, it's implied that he'll pay the full amount. And so it's word for word the same with these slight minor variations. And that similarity in wording should have reminded the man and it reminds us that what he had just needed and asked for and received is what is being asked of him. But with almost no self-awareness and no sense of what happened to him, look at what he did again. Verse 30, he refused. And he went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. He refused. There is more literally, he was not willing. And there's this this continued aspect to this, that he was not willing and he continued to be not willing and so he put him in prison. Now in that day, there was what they called debtor's prisons and uh, people would be held in a prison like that until their relatives or their friends would pay their debt. And this man refused and, and he refused not even to forgive. He, remember, he wasn't even asked to forgive. He refused patience. He was asked for patience for more time to pay the debt, and he refused, and so he was cruel. Look at verse 31, when his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. And so the other servants of this master were greatly distressed. Another word for it would be they were pained. They were saddened by what they saw, and, and that, to the extreme level, very much greatly saddened, greatly pained, greatly distressed. And so they told their master what they witnessed. And that then brings us to the final scene of this parable, and I, I called it the contrary king, because on the one hand, the king who forgave is now angry. But also on the other hand, this king changes his mind, and now he does the opposite of what he said he would do. And so he's contrary against the slave and he's doing the contrary of what he had originally said. And again, we're only dealing with the parable at this point, but this is number three, the contrary king. The contrary king. Verses 31 to 35. Verse No, really, it's actually verse starting in verse 32 here. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant! I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me and should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger his master delivered him to the jailers or to the torturers until he should pay all his debt. And so the king is still this master's or this servant's master. And this man likely actually belongs to the king. Servant, again, means slave. And so the master summons his slave when he heard the report. And we need to remember here that we're, we're really just at this point dealing with the parable. And it's a, a story that's designed to teach some truth. And in this case, it's a truth about forgiving our brother. And every detail of the story, because it's a parable, every detail is not meant to teach a truth. The whole story works together to teach something, usually only one specific thing, but the whole story works together to teach something. But not every aspect of the story is, is meant to kind of uh, connect to reality. And so we have to use the intro and we have to use verse 35, the conclusion, to discern what we're to take from this. And a few things that we're not to take, one one is here, God doesn't forgive and then change his mind. That's just the human king in the story. And even though that human king represents God, he only does so in some ways, not in every way. And just because the slave is a slave to the king in the parable doesn't mean that he represents a saved man. In fact, verse 32 gives us a better picture of his true state. He seems to be an unbeliever. Someone who claimed to believe and to be forgiven, but never was. Look at what the king said in verse 32. You wicked servant. You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And in many, many parables, when the master or the king in the parable calls somebody a wicked slave... That's a sign, an indication that that slave represents a professing believer. Somebody who seems to have followed Christ, but then turns out to be an unbeliever. And the king forgave all that debt, he says, because you pleaded with me. And pleaded was the same word that was used of the fellow slave in verse 29. Now verse 33 is a a really a rhetorical question. And should you, should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And of course the answer is, yes, you should have. Yes, I, I should have. There was a necessity to show mercy as I had mercy on you. The servant should have been like the master. And perhaps this reminds us of Matthew 5 and verse 7, the fifth beatitude, remember it, it, it was blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. And if you remember the context there, what was it that made them merciful? Well, it was the fact that, that they were poor in spirit, that they had nothing to offer, that they were spiritually bankrupt. And again, what we recognize here is that forgiven people forgive. People who have been shown mercy become merciful. And it's people who know their own spiritual bankruptcy and the depravity of their own sinful nature and the unpayable debt of their sins. These are people who will be gracious to others and have mercy on others. They will be patient and they will forgive. You see, we are to be a people who are like our God and like his son, Jesus Christ. And salvation is meant to transform us into the image of God and into the image of Christ. In Matthew 5.48, we're to be perfect as our Heavenly Father is perfect. You see, if we believe, if we believe the gospel, we believe that we are sinners. And we believe not only that, but we believe not just that we sinned, but also that our very nature was corrupted. Isaiah 56, 53, 6, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And we recognize that our nature was to stray. We recognize that we were in the flesh. and Romans 8, 7, the mind set on the flesh is hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. We were born of Adam, so that we were born corrupted by sin, and we were born as sinners. And in Adam, we all sinned, and death spread to us, and the penalty for sin is death. And every one of us is going to die because of our own sin, but also because of our connection to Adam. And this death includes General judgment, the punishment for sin is death, and as sinners we will die. And we are all, or we were all, destined for hell, for eternal punishment in hell. And God is just, and He is just to send us to hell for our sin, and even just to send us to hell for our connection to Adam. Just like you would feel justified to kill some repulsive creature, whatever that is to you, uh, maybe a a, a repulsive creature, a spider or a snake or a scorpion or a wasp, it comes into your house and smack that thing and kill that thing. It it repulses you because of its very nature, simply because of its nature, it's repulsive to you in the same way we are to God because of our sinful nature. And our debt of sin can never be paid. An eternity in hell wouldn't quench it one drop. 10,000 years in hell won't lessen the sentence. You see, what we owe an infinite and holy God can never be paid, not even to eternity, not by us. And so our only hope is mercy. Our only hope is forgiveness our only hope is grace undeserved favor by God but there's a problem there's a problem for God to forgive our sin would be for him to deny himself because God is holy and God is just a holy God cannot simply overlook sin which is hostile to him a holy God is devoted to himself and to his name and to his glory. And sin is contrary to him. And it's against him. And it's and he necessarily hates it with all of his being. His wrath burns against sin. And his wrath burns against sinners who turn to their own way. You see, we as sinners are infinitely repulsive to him. And then there's his justice. God is also just, and our sin is unjust. Our sin is unrighteous, and it it doesn't merely affect ourselves. Our sin corrupts others. It influences others. It hurts others, and it offends God and His holy law, and it offends His justice. In the parable of the lost debt, or of the the debt here, the 10,000 talents, losing that amount would would really have bankrupted the nation or almost have bankrupted the nation. And so it's going to impact the nation negatively. And justice really requires a payment for that. Justice requires a payment. Justice cries out when someone was wronged by sin. And as just, God must punish sin. To do otherwise would be unjust. And again, God would have to deny himself. And that would have been to our doom, right? We had this unpayable debt of sin and a holy and a just God really stands against us in that sense. Payment had to be made. God's nature was against us. His holiness and His justice against our sinful and corrupt nature. And so we had no hope then of mercy. We have no hope of grace. We had no hope of forgiveness. But somehow, and I told you at the beginning that God's glory, part of his glory, is that he forgives sin. And so somehow, really, almost against hope, another attribute of God arose. Another characteristic of God seemed to rise even higher than the others. Never fighting against his attributes, and yet somehow overcoming them. In our wretched state, while we were still sinners, somehow God loved us. He loved us though we were as yet unlovely. He loved us in our hostility against us. He He loved us in our enmity against him. He loved us though we were entirely contrary to him. And by his infinite wisdom, he found a way to be just and yet to justify us. He found a way to forgive us of our sin without denying himself. And he sent his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, The second person of the Trinity who is also holy and just and wise and loving. And he loved us too. And he came to represent us in place of Adam. And he lived a holy life in this world as a man. And he earned a payment that would satisfy the Father. And he earned a perfect righteousness that could be granted to us in him. And he died in our place. And our sin was punished in him, First Peter 2.24, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. And he made this infinite payment that nobody could pay. Which really, he alone could do. He paid for all the sins of everyone who would ever believe. And we can be forgiven of all of our sins. And that's what we believe that God did for us. This is what we believe if we believe the gospel. This is what we believe that God has done for us. He has paid this unpayable debt. And this is what we trust him for. Jesus not only forgives our sin, he also makes us righteous in God's sight. And in him we are accepted in God's presence and we become children of God. And if we believe this gospel, if we believe this good news, it, it changes us because God himself changes us. He saves us. He plants a new nature in us. We are born again and and as newborn babies in Christ. We are different. We are we are new. We're babies still, but we are we are like new babies born into this world by God and the realization of our enormous debt forgiven makes us want to be like our father and like our king and we want to be like Jesus we were we were really saved in the hope that we would be like him now all of of this knowledge doesn't necessarily make forgiven forgiveness easy forgiveness implies that we were wronged that it was wrong we were sinned against The offending party deserves justice. They deserve the penalty for their sin, but we recognize that we deserve so much worse. We deserve so much worse for our sin, and we were forgiven. And so when we have been wronged, we see Jesus on the cross dying in our place, and we see Jesus, we see God forgiving us in Christ. And it makes us delight in mercy and forgiveness. It makes us willing to forgive others who have wronged us. Especially when they turn from their sin and they want to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. And we know as followers of Christ that we are to forgive. Those who sin against us, we are to forgive them. In verse 34, it really should ring in our ears in the anger. His master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. Again, God doesn't unforgive us our sins. That's not what, what we should draw from this parable. But it really is a warning to us here that if we are not forgiving, neither will we be forgiven verse thirty five so also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you, every one of you, to every one of you, if you do not forgive your brother from your heart, how is that uh, for an answer to peter 's question, How often, Lord, well, unless you want to be delivered to the torturers, you know unless you want to go to hell, unless you want to show yourself to not be a believer, then really the answer is every single time to, to without limit or extend without end we already saw this in matthew six fourteen and 15 where jesus says if you forgive others their trespasses your heavenly father will also forgive you but if you do not forgive others their trespasses neither will your father forgive your trespasses see it's required of us as followers of jesus christ to be forgiving and to forgive And if we have been forgiven, and if we have that in the proper perspective, we will forgive those who sin against us. And if we don't, we show ourselves to be wicked. We show ourselves to be unbelieving. We show ourselves to be faithless. We show ourselves to really be pseudo-servants like the man in the parable. And so we are to forgive as we have been forgiven let's let's pray father we just kind of ending on that warning we see the seriousness of forgiveness and yet father we recognize what you have forgiven us and we can't help but thank you and and worship you for the forgiveness that you've given us in christ for the salvation that we have in him, the forgiveness of all of our trespasses. As far as the east is from the west, so have our sins been removed from us. And we thank you for that, Father, and we rejoice in that, and we want to be forgiving people, Father. And so we pray, we pray for one another in this moment. If there's anyone here in this place who, who is struggling to forgive somebody who's wronged them, we pray that you would help them by the knowledge of what you've done for them in Christ. And we pray that you'd give us wisdom in, in this forgiveness that we would know when to forgive, that we would know when people have turned from their sins and we can grant them full reconciliation or when we just have to stand ready to forgive those who repent. We pray that you would give us wisdom in the practical outworking of this, Father. But we thank you for the blood of Jesus that paid for our sin, that paid our unpayable debt. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.